are we, are we sustaining our prayer life on an earning mindset or on a father mindset? Well, it's good to be with you all. It feels a little bit like it's the first citywide of the year just because the school year began. So it's good to, good to be with all of you here. I want to I spend some time today talking about, about prayer and how we, we, we relate to God. So there have been a lot of, of polls that have been done over the years where they ask people to self-rate their prayer life, these anonymous type surveys where, where you can describe how your prayer life is going. And very consistently you hear people say things like, my mind wanders when I pray. It feels like sometimes my, my prayers just bounce off the wall. I don't know how to pray. You, you hear a lot of frustration and, and disappointment in, in when people are really open with, with where they are with their prayer lives. So, so we have that, that world over here, this kind of cold reality of, of that. I was in, in uh, one of the classes I teach at Sattler, we were talking this past week about the Core Discipleship Journal, which is a journal where you can circle how often you pray for a, a given topic and how for a lot of people, they go through this and they realize, wow, I actually don't pray very much for the things that are really important to me and it's, it's very illuminating in that. Okay, so we have this world over here of disappointment. But then over here, I think we all know in our heads at least that, that prayer is supposed to be the, the lifeblood of the church. It's supposed to be the lifeblood of the Christian. There's, there's a writer, his name is Jack Taylor. I read his book many years ago, but he, he opens up with these very profound principles and the, the first principle, he says that no church can rise above the level of its corporate prayer life. Okay, so the corporate prayer life of a church is like the ceiling that a church can, can ultimately stop at. That's, that's the first principle. And then he says the corporate prayer life of a church is, is bounded, it can't rise above the individual's prayer life. Okay, so we, we all have individual prayer lives here, so we can all try to come together for prayer meetings, but if our individual prayer lives are lousy, then that is yet another limit. And then the third limit is that any individual's prayer life is limited by his or her worship life. Okay, so those are the, the, the ceilings, if you will, that determine our, our walk with God, our our prosperity with God, our, our success with God. So no church can rise above its corporate prayer life. The corporate prayer life of a church can't rise above the individual's prayer life. And then thirdly, the individual's prayer life can't rise above his or her worship life. Okay, so, so with that stage set, I want us to, to look here at a couple of passages from Jesus on prayer. So turn with me in your Bibles or on your devices to two passages. They're, they're both well-known passages, Luke 18 and Matthew 6. We're going to start in Luke 18 and then we're going to Matthew 6 here to, 
to understand from Jesus himself how he wants us to pray. All right, Luke 18, 1 to 14. Then he, Jesus, spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said, and shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Verse 9, also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Okay, and then now flip to Matthew 6. We're going to read verses 5 to 9. Matthew 6, 5 to 9. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they might be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. In this manner, therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We'll stop at that point here. So these are three famous teachings of Jesus on prayer. I think most of us have, have read these many times in our, in our lives. I think it's interesting that in the Old Testament, you can read through the whole Old Testament, there's a lot of great examples of people who are amazing prayer warriors who moved God people like Abraham and Moses, but they never gave instructions on how to pray. You think about some of the prophets, Elijah, again, famous for his ability to, to pray and shut the heavens from, from dispensing rain. He doesn't teach us how to pray. Isaiah doesn't teach us how to pray. Jeremiah doesn't. It is Jesus who teaches us how to pray. So often when we, when we, meet people, I hope that we, we say, okay, you have an expertise in something and I want to learn that. So if you meet a professional tennis player, you might ask them how, how to, they hit their backhand or how they serve. If you're a historian, you might say, teach me about, how to, um, about your period of history that you're 
you're experienced in. When, when I was early on in my business career, I got to meet Sergey Brin, who was, who's the founder of Google. Uh, and I got to have s several hours with him. And I thought, wow, what an opportunity to, to be with this person. And of course, my questions were all around how in the world do you go from an idea to, to a company as big as Google? What, what we have here in these three passages is Jesus' connection to the Father that is sustained through prayer that he's teaching us all about. And so I'm going to give you four points here from these three passages that I hope will animate us and fuel us for this year as we press in more into prayer. My first point is that Jesus calls us to be relational, not transactional. Okay, so let's look at the Matthew 6 passage here. So first point to note is, I was reading from the New King James, it says, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. Some translations say pagans, some, some translations say Gentiles. I, I think that might throw us off a little bit, that word heathen, because at least when most people use the word heathen that I'm with, we tend to think of people who are worldly, they don't believe in God, they're on drugs, they, they swear a lot, right? They're heathen, those, those people out there. But that's, that's not the, the population that Jesus is talking about here. That's not the group that he's talking about here. This group of heathen or pagans or Gentiles, however you want to translate this, these people are praying a lot. So these are not the ordinary type of heathen that we would describe in our world today. So they're praying a lot. Apparently they're praying in public places. They're, they're praying in, in ways to gain attention. And apparently what they believe is that their access to God, their, their means of connecting to God, the basis for which their prayers are being heard, is their, their many words. It's their effort. So they're just piling on words and words and more words and words. And... They think that that is how they're going to gain favor, how they're going to gain an audience with God. I am totally convinced of this. I've been convinced of this for many years now, that one of the most deep problems in our hearts, one of the most pervasive problems in humanity today, is that we are transactional, uh, that we approach people, we approach God in a transactional manner. We, we say, oh, I did this, so you owe me that. It's, it's a sense of earning or wages. It is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly deep in our hearts. This concept of wages compared to gifts. And I, I actually think that this is one of the one of the lessons that we learn often wrongly at a very young age, even from our parents. Some of us read a book over the summer that it made a big impact on me. I was reading it actually for a second time, and the book highlights the story of, of Andre Agassi. So not everybody here is old enough to know who Andre Agassi is, but he, he was a very, very famous tennis player when, when, I was, when I was young, when I was in high school. And he was number one player in the world for, for many years. He won eight Grand Slams. He was this very sort of flamboyant, well-known player. And 
his, his uh, father was an immigrant from Iran who basically made him play intense tennis from a very young age. So when he was, when he was still a baby, you know how you have in your crib, you have these, these mobiles that there's little birds or animals that are spinning around. So his father made his crib uh, mobile have tennis balls hanging down from it. So as a young baby, he wanted him to be able to track really well a tennis ball with his eyes. He started his training regimen at six months old. Yes, six months, not six years. And at two years old, he, he had his son uh, strapped with tape a tennis racket onto his arm. So he'd have to walk around with a tennis racket taped to his arm because he wanted him to feel the racket um, constantly. When he got a little bit older, he made him hit every day 2,500 tennis balls per day. Um, he had this machine that they called it the Dragon that would launch tennis balls at a, at a speed of 110 miles an hour from the other side of the court because he wanted him to develop very rapid reaction time. And if you multiply it out, 2,500 times 365 is about a million tennis balls per day that he would have to, per year rather, a million tennis balls per year that he was hitting. And uh, Agassi goes on to write his autobiography and he says, I hated tennis. I absolutely hated it because I was totally pushed into the sport by my dad. And he talks about how he, he would do this to please or, or uh, win favor from his father. And this led to a very tense relationship. The father uh, answered critics by saying, people say, this is a quote from the father, his name is Michael Agassi, people say I pushed my kids too hard and I nearly destroyed them. And you know what? They're right. I was too hard on them. I made them feel like that what they did was never good enough. But after the childhood I had fighting for every scrap in Iran, I was determined to give my kids a better life. It clearly worked in, in, from a, from a pure outcomes perspective. So Agassi goes on to be this amazing tennis player, number one player in the world. Uh, to illustrate how toxic and performance driven this relationship was, he goes on to Wimbledon. Wimbledon is the, the most prestigious tournament, the, the greatest of the Grand Slams. He goes on to play Wimbledon. His dad doesn't even show up at Wimbledon uh, to the finals. And he wins. He wins Wimbledon, highest honor in all of tennis. He calls his dad up on the phone, Dad, I won Wimbledon. His dad's answer is, you shouldn't have lost the fourth set. Agassi in his, in his writing says this, I hate tennis, hate it with all my heart, and I still keep playing, keep hitting all morning and all afternoon because I have no choice. It is a classic but extreme example of this performance mindset where his transactional relationship with his parents where it was, I work hard at tennis, I earn their favor. If I don't perform, I don't. Some of the most successful people in the world have brokenness inside them that has driven them to their success. Right? A lot of the people that are celebrated in the world today, if you, if you peel back the cover and look into their heart, you see a lot of brokenness there. We're supposed to learn from our parents unconditional love. We're supposed to learn 
a deep sense of being cherished and having an identity that is secure, but instead we can learn a performance mindset. As I said, I think this is extremely common, and I want you to be honest with yourself and think about in your own heart how you have the performance mindset. Jesus does something very different. So he's, he, he tells us that this is how the, the pagans, the, the Gentiles, the heathens are praying. They think that the way they gain access to God is with effort, with words. But Jesus says it's actually supposed to be different when you pray if you're one of my disciples. And the, the very first word in the Lord's Prayer in Greek is Father, pater hemon. In English, it's our Father, but Father is the first word. Father our, Father of us, is the first word. What Jesus tells us is that when his disciples are coming to God in prayer, the reason that we get a hearing is not because of piling up words, it's not because of some kind of extravagant effort, it's because of the relational access that is created by the father-child relationship. So the basis is not performance, it is relationship. So again, this is all over, all, all strains of Christianity. This is not particular to any one denomination or church or anything like that. Are we, are we sustaining our prayer life on an earning mindset or on a father mindset? An earning mindset or a father mindset? What's, what's, so, what's so different about a father mindset, a family mindset, a child mindset, is that I think all of us know that what's different about family, what's different about our parents and siblings and spouse and children is that we're, we're stuck with them, right? For better or for worse, we're stuck with them. And that, that enables a totally different relationship to flourish, which I'm gonna unpack in my later points here. Okay, so point number one is that we're to be relational, not transactional. Point number two is be worshipful because of your relationship. Be worshipful because of your relationship. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna make a little side note here before I get to the heart of this point. So th this, is, this is something that I think is worth just commenting on. It's easy to read over this quickly, but when, just because we've read it so much, but when Jesus says in verse six, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your father. I, I preached through this several years ago here at Oakland Street, and for some reason I never heard or paid attention to that shut the door comment. And we're supposed to in intentionally create a space of isolation or solitude. The things that we do when we're alone, when nobody sees us, these are the truest demonstration of our character. When there's no spotlight on us, when nobody's watching us, when there's no accolades on us, that really reflects who we are at the deepest parts of our heart. I'll read you a quote from J.C. Ryle who says it well. He says, a man may preach from false motives 
a man may write books and make fine speeches and seem diligent in good works and yet be a Judas Iscariot. But a man seldom goes into his closet and pours out his soul before God in secret unless he is serious. Very true. Um, I, have, I have given talks in a lot of places over many years and I can tell you right now it is the easiest thing in the world to go up and give talks to, to people and seem like a very spiritual, holy person. And yet, there can be a lot of ugliness and brokenness and sin underneath all that. The real mark of who you are is your, your secret life. Okay, so now, I want us to, to tie in our first point to this point here. So I said, Jesus calls us to have our access to, in prayer, to be relational, not transactional. So let's think about this. If, if your Christianity, if your discipleship is primarily transactional, quid pro quo, I do this, you do that, this type of relationship, then your prayer life is going to be mechanical, it's going to be cold, and it's going to be one that is fundamentally based on this, this sense of, okay, I did this, why isn't it working? I'm, I'm done or I'm disappointed. It's going gonna, it's gonna to feel mechanical. I'm, I have no doubt about this, that your prayer life will be dominated by a very, okay, I prayed today <laughs> type, type feeling here. But in distinction, if you understand, if you, not just in your head, but in your heart, but if you, if you really understand that our access to God is not based on effort, heaping up words, some kind of earning mindset, it is simply sheer gift it is something that we have not earned, that is something that is wholly undeserved, that the God of the universe would reach down to us and invite us to become his child. You're going to be giddy. <laughs> You're going to be excited. You're going to realize that the basis of our prayer relationship is not one of, I do this, you do that, but it is one of celebration and thrill and delight. You're going to think, wait a minute, I don't deserve to be in this relationship. I don't deserve to be adopted. It is for this reason that one of the best marks, one of the best, best marks of someone's prayer life, and it's what I mentioned in, in the beginning when I was referencing Jack Taylor, is, is your worship life. Your prayer life and your worship life are so bound together that you can hardly separate them, which is why, by the way, in the Lord's Prayer, the first petitions are all about God and his glory. They're about adoration. Statements like, hallowed be your name. I, I, I want to I challenge all of us, you know, to uh, one, of the, one of the great practices I think we should all do is, is actually pray the Lord's Prayer daily. But the best way to pray the Lord's Prayer is not to just recite it. It takes 30 seconds, maybe 20 seconds, to say the whole Lord's Prayer from start to finish, right? It's so short. The best way to do it is to go through every line, every phrase, very slowly, and you stop after every phrase or every line, and you unpack it, and you come at it from many different angles and ways. So, for example, when you pray our Father, you stop, and you situate yourself in the light of that relationship, and you move away, you push away, the transactional type of earning-based pagan thinking 
that is out there and you press in to a relational father-child based relationship. When you pray, hallowed be thy name, you stop and you sing or you play a song on your device. It is not intended to be run through in a quick manner, but it is intended to be something that every line goes, is gone through in a searching, heartfelt, deep manner. And I, I sometimes worry that we can go so quickly that we, we miss the significance of it. Okay, my third point is to be repetitive because of your relationship. Okay, so the first point was were to be relational, not transactional. Second point, to be worshipful because of our relationship. Our third point is to be repetitive because of our relationship. Now, Luke 18, the first passage that I read, Jesus exhorts us, it says, to pray always and not lose heart. I love that phrase. Pray always and not lose heart. And, and that might confuse you because, wait a minute, didn't those people in Matthew 6, they were praying a lot, right? They were keeping up all these words, and here Jesus is saying to be persistent. Of course, the solution to that supposed contradiction is that what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 6 is empty phrases or meaningless repetition. He's not talking about heartfelt repetition. Jesus himself in Gethsemane prays three times for the same thing. One of the things that, that I'm sure you all, if you think about it, would agree with is that you are much bolder, you are much more repetitive, you are much more direct with your family members than you are with people outside your family. This is your, your spouse, your children, your parents. Because you know that you are bound together, right? Because you know that you have this relationship that is not going to vary, that you're going to still be their, their son, you're still going to be their daughter, still going to be your wife or husband, still going to be your, your son or daughter, then that gives us a kind of boldness that is appropriate, very appropriate. Today, we did a four-mile hike, uh, my family and I, we, we often go on hikes on Fridays, and I carried my three-year-old for the first three and a half miles of the hike. I just carried him in my, in my, on my arm like this, and I, I, the last half mile, so we were, I was using a little, I was using my phone, which said how far we had gone, and I, and I saw the marker for three and a half miles, and I, I was thinking, okay, surely he can walk for half a mile. I've carried this little guy for three and a half miles, I'm tired, I want a little break here. This did not go over so well. I set him down, and he's, he hasn't quite learned his pronouns appropriately yet, so he says, hold you, which, of course, he means hold me. Um, I hear this repetitive hold you, hold you, hold you, with an increasing fever pitch of, of intensity, I decide I'm going to keep walking here, and he's going to catch up. So maybe not the nicest thing, but I just said, time to teach them toughness here. So the tears are flowing, hold, hold you, hold you, hold you. And so he tries a second tactic, which is he decides to run in front of me and to block my path um, and even like right in front of my legs with again looking up, hold you, hold you, hold you. This goes on for 20 minutes. I'm not going to hold you. I want you to walk. Hold you, hold you, hold you. 
blocking me. I was, I was trying to walk fast and, and get away from the little guy because I was, I was tired, but he persisted and didn't give up. You know, Jesus, he, he likens our, a good disciple to being like a child. And I think one of the underappreciated aspects that right now I'm kind of in the middle of parenthood, my oldest is 15, youngest is, is two, is they are very repetitive. They are very bold. They are very direct. And you think, like, isn't your throat getting tired? Like, I mean, like, you sometimes wonder, like, you're screaming like this, man, like, surely an adult would give up after a minute or two. They're not like that. Why? Because they know that there is a relationship that is intact. And even when their feelings might get hurt, even when they're not picked up, we had lunch right after that. He climbs into my lap and was happy as a the clam. There's, there's a true unconditional beauty to that relationship that we need to press into. We don't get fancy titles when we interact with children. When I was back in my, in my years of seeing patients, I, I took care of both adults and pediatric patients, and I always loved seeing pediatric patients because the adult patients would look you up, many of the adult patients would look you up on Google, and so they would like know who you are, and they'd see your degrees in school and all that, and so you had a little bit of credibility before you walked in the room, but a child, forget about it. They don't care what school you've gone to, they don't care how smart you are, they don't care about anything other than how well they can feel a sense of trust and confidence and care from you. It's, a, it's an insistent, simple pleading that is a function of our relationship. If that had been anybody else, if that had been any of you on that hike with me, I would have called the police. I would have said, what are you doing? You have no, you have, getting right in front of me, you're harassing me. Give me my space. But there is a unique relationship created by the, the father-child relationship. My fourth and final point is to be desperate because of our relationship. Okay, so in the second part of Luke 18, there's a second parable that's given where we, Jesus continues to teach about prayer. So it's back-to-back parables about prayer. And it's a hilarious picture. You know, it's the, the New King James actually does a good job of translating that, that first part of Luke 18 where it says that, it says that um, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Wow, isn't that interesting? The Pharisee's praying with himself. <laughs> what, what, a, what a picture that is. In, um, in, in the office that I work on, that I work in, uh, we, we're on Zoom a lot. We're on Zoom way too much. Uh, and the, one of the most common lines that you'll hear if you roam the halls of the office that I'm in is, hey, Bob, you're on mute. Uh, and, then, and then Bob will unmute himself and talk, and, and he'll, then Mary will talk, and then Bob will start talking, hey, Bob, you're on mute again. You know, it's like, come on, like, did you get it already? And we've all been in situations where either somebody else is on mute or you're on mute, right? Sometimes you ever had the experience where you're talking on the phone and you're going on and on, and then you look and the phone was actually disconnected and you're like, oh man, <laughs> I was talking for who knows how long into the air. The Pharisee is actually talking to himself. He's not talking to God. He's praying with himself. 
It's not going anywhere. It's not going into the heavens. And even his thanksgivings are tinged with pride. You know, he says, he thanks God for not being like other people, not being extortioners or unjust or adulterers or even like this tax collector. It's, it's very easy, isn't it, to settle into a form of, of complacency that is based on comparison. But this Pharisee's prayers are on mute. They're not going anywhere. He's praying to himself. In, in distinction, what we see from the tax collector is a completely different experience. It says in verse 13 of Luke 18, it says, the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm, I'm really actually mystified at the translations here. That I think it's a, it's a poor translation uh, that New King James and ESV and these translations give. If you, if you look it up, if you look up Luke 18, verse 13, you'll see there's a definite article in front of sinner there. What he's actually saying is, God be merciful to me, the sinner. And that, that really changes the feel of the prayer in so many ways. He's not saying, oh, be merciful to me, one of all these like millions of sinners all around me. He sees himself as the sinner, as the problem in the world today. The, the force of that is, is unmistakable when you, when you read it in, in Greek. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. What a prayer that is. And then what is, of course, the outcome of this? It says that this man goes down to his house justified rather than the other. Uh, the word justified is a, is a rich word, a complex word, uh, which we won't get into all that now. But, but the sense here, I think, that is meant by justify is the sense that God has taken up his cause. God is on his side. God is his advocate. And when it says there that for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted, God is going to be the one who exalts this tax collector. Because of the relationship that the tax collector has with God, he doesn't view himself in a comparative manner, which is, again, very, very easy to do, right? I mean, I, I, I sometimes wonder, like, what would life be like if, if we were surrounded by people like, I don't know, Hudson Taylor and John Wesley and Charles Finney and all these people, right? We would, we would feel really like, whoa, like, what's wrong with me? I'm, I'm kind of not doing so well. But because we're actually comparing ourselves to other people that maybe aren't doing so well either, it's easy to have a false sense of complacency and still worse to look at other people who are on the outside and think, wow, I'm sure glad I'm not them. Because of the relationship that this tax collector has with God, he views himself as entirely unworthy and as the sinner, as the sinner. And because of that, he is justified and not the other. I've told this story before, but I think about it a lot, so I'll say it again. It's a, it's a story about a woman in India 
and she she was married to a man who was a a pretty difficult husband. He had a drinking problem. He was he was very um, abusive with her, physically, verbally, and and in general, just made her life miserable. She was a, a committed Christian. He was not, and. One day, this man decides to go, this husband decides to go and listen to this woman as she prayed. So he was, decided to spy on her. And he expected that when he went to hear this woman pray, he would hear prayers like, God, help my husband to repent, help his life to turn around, help, help, uh, help him to repent for abusing me, etc. But he was dumbfounded and completely astounded when he, he was listening to her and he heard instead, Father, please forgive me for being a bad wife to my husband. Forgive me for all the different ways that I've, I've let him down. Forgive me for being the sinner, for being the problem and the reason that, that um, our relationship isn't, isn't where it needs to be. And he heard this stream of confessions come from, that came from her not, not maligning him, but rather indicting herself. And that melted him in a, in a powerful way. As I said, I, I, I wanted to give this message because in many ways I think of this as the start of the year for a lot of us who are in some way bound to the academic calendar. If you're a homeschooler or a student or a teacher or something like that, you're bound to the calendar here. And I really do hope, I've been meditating on this for, for some time, I really do hope that we can press into prayer in ways that we have not before. And I think this is as good of a time as any. In general, uh, uh, as a person who's spent a lot of time between East and West, uh, growing up in Indian contexts and, and going back and forth between Indian contexts and American contexts, it is definitely, I would say, the weakest spot of American or Western Christianity is there's very, very little emphasis on fervent, passionate, consistent corporate prayer, which as I said, in turn depends on individual prayer, which in turn depends on one's individual worship life. I want us to change that. I want us to, to change that and to, to raise the ceiling of our potential and what we can actualize as we move into our, our year here. So I'm gonna close us in prayer and then I'll invite Brother Jonathan to come up and close us in a song. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, please forgive us for the many ways in which we have come to you in a transactional, earning-based mentality. We repent of these ways and want to come to you as our Father, as a little child comes to our perfect father. We thank you that you are unimaginably better than any of our earthly fathers. As I heard recently, you are not the reflection of our earthly fathers, you are the perfection of our earthly fathers. I pray that we would press into a life of relationship through worship, that we would be repetitive, and desperate. I pray that our, our lives of prayer would be marked by an organic, healthy dependency 
that begins in our prayer closets. May our lives of worship be so rich, so full, individually and corporately. May we be glad when we come into your house. May we come into your house with thanksgiving, with praise, with our hearts keen to shed the, the anxieties and claws of the world. I pray that as we move into this school year, that it would truly be a rich year of worship, of prayer, adoration. You are worthy, O Lord. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. It's in the name of your Son we pray all these things. Amen.